All right, before we get into this episode, just two quick things. One is I will be one of the speakers at the Best Ever Conference. So make sure you go and grab your tickets today. Just go to besteverconference.com and then type in hashtag Blue Spruce. That'll get you 25% off your tickets. So I hope to see you there. Uh, the other thing is that this episode, this Dan Hanford episode, um, I play, I somehow I put half of the episode. So if you are one of the thousands of people that have already listened to the first half, you can just skip to about uh, minute mark 20 and you'll be at that part of the episode. Okay, so um, I don't want you to listen to this episode and be mad at me that you've already heard some of it. So if you've heard half of it already, skip to halfway through and uh, listen to the last half. All right, thanks again, and here we go. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam A. Adams, and we are with Dr. Dan Hanford. How are you, Dan? I'm doing great, Adam. Thanks for having me. Good. A little bit about Dan is uh, he has a background in medical as a chiropractor, and he actually owns a few different medical service. I guess with, uh, you'll tell us a little bit more about it, but there's, there's these five groups of, of doctors that he puts together, and he, as an entrepreneur, makes money through that. He and his wife, Deanne, uh, they actually um, currently the host the fastest growing entrepreneurial podcast, and that is a fact. These guys have two episodes coming out a day. No one can touch them. They're by far the fastest growing. And that is Tough Decisions Podcast. I recommend you go and listen to the latest step. Well, it's probably not the latest episode anymore. <laughs> uh, it's probably 100 back by the time you get there because how fast they're growing. But go to Tough Decisions Podcast. You will notice Dan and Deanne, they have this way of getting a ton of really valuable information just in about... 10 to 20 minutes. So it's it's incredible what they're doing. They're pulling out the tough decisions that entrepreneurs have to make so that they can kind of learn and grow. He's also a real estate investor and a doctor. So welcome to the show, Dr. Dan Hanford. Thank you so much. And uh, I appreciate the uh, the plug for the podcast there. It was It's kind of unique because we did an interview with you a couple months back and it, it because we were so recorded up and it, it, today was the day that we're, uh, yours was launched, even though like people are listening now, it might be a little bit yeah. later, but Today yeah. was the day we launched it. It's just kind of cool. Yeah, I, I already listened to it. It was a 15-minute episode. And so how did you do? <laughs> uh, well, geez. I, I think you, you guys are really good at asking like really good questions. And you have to think. You, know, you have to think as, as being a guest on your show, you, um, you ask questions that pull out the most amount of information and in a way, I felt like a little bit uncomfortable to be able to um, to get that information out in a in a quick manner. Um, but ultimately, I think that that was a good podcast as far as showing people not to be chasing shiny objects, to really focus on one thing, learn how to you know have the power of a positive no. And listening to some of the other episodes, you have a way of, of doing that to, to people, you know, getting them in a vulnerable place, not so that they feel uncomfortable, but so that your audience, the listener, actually yeah. takes something away from it. So I really appreciate They, they talk about things that they don't normally or wouldn't normally talk about. And we can learn as entrepreneurs from other entrepreneurs and not just from their successes, but also from their failures and how to make things better and improve things and, and reduce that learning curve. 
Yeah. And then, and there was one question. I, I appreciated that you guys found a way to edit that out. Cause you asked me, what do I use? What does my company use for, um, to, for, to systemize, to automate and somebody else in the team, they really focus on that. I just focus on meetup.com and I'm like, that's the one. And, but you guys, uh, took that out just perfectly. Cause I was like, I don't remember what we use. I, I mean, I'm not the one who does it. So it was, it was, it well, was it's really funny. Cause I didn't even tell them to take it out, but if there was some sort of a bleb, they probably took it out for me. So it was the editors. <laughs> oh, well they did a good job and it didn't yeah. even sound like there wasn't even a, you couldn't tell that there was a cut at all. It just flowed through just perfectly. It was, it was awesome. really interesting. So why don't we do this? Why don't we start here, Dan? You um, started in the chiropractic field. So when you were going through school, did you ever see yourself as kind of being more of a business owner or did you always think that you were going to be that technician who was just fixing people's backs? Sure. So I've always been an entrepreneur ever since I was growing up. And so I've always had that bent and that kind of, you know, you know slant to what I've been wanting to do. So I never envisioned the where I'm at right now. It just kind of has evolved over the years. But where I've envisioned myself was starting my own practice being my own boss and doing that kind of thing. Cause a lot of the list of the, of my friends that graduated with me, they went and worked for another chiropractor first and kind of what's called an associateship. And that, I mean, they can learn the business and learn, you know, how to run a practice and stuff like that and work with patients and the flow and you know staff and insurance and stuff like that. But prior to even going into school, I had worked for my wife's uncle who is at the time wasn't my, my wife, but my wife who's now my wife, his, her uncle, um, and so I worked for him for like five years, four or five years. So I knew a lot of the back end, the business and the processes. And I was pretty much running the show by the time I was able to you know, leave there and, and actually go to chiropractic school. So, um, when I left chiropractic school, I had a lot of that business stuff already in my, my head. And so all I needed was the clinical component. And so once I got that clinical component, I was able to launch that practice right away, right out of school. So I didn't envision not doing chiropractic. I, I, you know, you go to school for, you know, eight years to be a doctor and then you imagine yourself doing that the rest of your life. But I never envisioned it being like it is now, but I'm a big believer in just opening doors, going through them. And as opportunity arises, continue to go through those doors that open up and, you know, the Lord will close doors sometimes when, th when, th when things are not supposed to be going the way you're supposed to be going. And, you know, sometimes people will say, well, sometimes, you, you know, the door shuts, but you want I want to push it open a little bit more. And so there's different analogies for that, but you know, I'm a big believer in, and if you have an opportunity, go pursue that opportunity until the door closes. That's, that's great. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive in and we're going to ask you some, some detailed questions. I'm going to try to do what you do to oh me. Oh boy. Throw, throw, back, throw back at me. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Tell me if this describes you, you purchased a property, okay. A rental for its passive income. And then you realize later that it wasn't really passive now was it so there is one solution and that is the only way that i know that you can actually be passive i'm passively invested in 400 and something doors and uh i love it i love those real estate investments of mine because i don't have to do anything it's the only actual passive investments that i have and i have hundreds of other doors that i have to work really hard at it's not really passive. And if you want that solution as well, if, and if you'd like to partner with Blue Spruce Holdings, we have opportunities right now for accredited investors. So you can go to the show notes and schedule time, book a time just to chat with me and see if becoming an actually <laughs> passive, passive investor works for you and your real estate goals. Okay. So what year was that when you were first, uh, what, what year were you going to school for chiropractic? 
2007 to 2000 and to the end of 2010. Okay. So you graduated at the end of 2010? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And then what happened? So you went and worked for somebody or you started your own practice? For yeah, so I started, I started out right when I got done. So I, I literally graduated in December and then that next quarter I opened up another, I opened up my first practice and that's, that's when it all started was, was that first practice in 2000 for beginning of 2011. Okay. And right then at the very, very beginning, did you own the building that you were working out of or did, were you renting a space? So when you're starting a business, you try to do it as lean as possible. Um, and so I also did a lot of research in, you know, the benefits of, of leasing versus owning and things like that. And so that time I, I leased everything. And even up to this point, all five of my medical offices, we lease at this point. And I've considered trying to buy the buildings and things like that. But I, I, I just get a little bit worried about, you know, whether or not I should do that or not. So I, I have not bought the buildings. They're all leased um, at this point. Tell me, tell me more about the leases that you're doing right now. Just curious, are these single net, double net, triple net? What are you, what are you doing there? So it's a mix. So there's some of them that are modified net. There's some of them that are um, triple net. And then, uh, so we have uh, two offices that are inside of uh, MOB. So medical office buildings where there are, you know, two or three story buildings and we lease out uh, 2,500 square feet in each one. And those ones are usually a triple net, triple net lease with uh, escalation zero over year. And then we also have other offices. Uh, one of them is in a, a another another non actually two of them are in non strip areas. Where the one's a standalone building, five thousand square feet, and another one is inside of a three unit complex. Where there's like a two stories, there's two stories, there's two units up top and one unit at the bottom. And we lease twenty five hundred square feet there. And then there's one in our Charleston office, which is actually a strip mall, but it's not like you know there's not like a a, a beauty salon and then like a, a medical office. It's all medical in this particular one. It's right behind the, the emergency room and in, in behind the Trident Hospital in Charleston. Okay, great. All right. So my, I guess my question would be uh, 2,500 is, it's not huge. So uh, the question is how many uh, specialists can be in that one space that you're leasing? One and a half. So we typically do, um, we usually have about three to four exam rooms and we'll have a full digital x-ray suite in which each one we have a, a special room that's called our C-arm room where we have a, 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 a video x-ray is what it is and it allows us to be able to image guide certain injections and then we have just standard exam rooms and we have usually one or two consult rooms and of course there's usually a room at the front for you know waiting room and there's uh, uh, you know, front desk staff and there's an office manager up there and stuff like that. So it's usually built out with like three to four exam rooms, one or two consults. There's a, there's a, there's a medication drop room where they prepare the procedures and then there's an x-ray room and then there's the, the waiting room in the front desk. Okay. And I guess my next question is you're not, are you, or are you not subleasing this out to another doctor? No. Okay. No, we, so this is your practice, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And yeah. So I, I own the practices 100%, and we have just under 50 employees that work um, in all total in all five clinics. That's a lot. Okay. Yeah. So, how do you? Just my question is: You've got five places. Mm -hmm. um, so I imagine one way that it might be able to work is that you're showing up at, at Charleston on Monday, another place on Tuesday, another place all day Wednesday, or is it something different? No, so we actually have full-time staff in each one of the locations. So the physician will, will rotate around into the different locations, but each location has its own full-time 
a nurse practitioner or what they call a mid-level provider that's actually seeing the majority of the patients and the medical doctors are coming in and are doing the more complicated procedures that are more procedures. So they're more procedure based. Okay. So do you have, is there uh, friends or uh, contractors, other doctors that you bring in as specialists on a case by case basis? Is, is that how it kind of works as well or no? Yeah, so we've, we've considered that, especially for some of the more advanced procedures, but we don't, our, our focus is really on non-surgical orthopedics and doing a lot of regenerative medicine. So prolotherapy, PRP, the platelet-rich plasma therapy and stem cell therapy and things like that. And so we really don't really need to have somebody come in. Like we've considered like doing some additional pain medicine, medicine, pain management procedures like, you know, interventional spinal injections and stuff like that. But we just don't really have the demand for that because it's not the type of patient that we attract. So okay. for the most part, all of our physicians, actually not for the most part, all of the part, they all work for me and they are on salary um, uh, for all my staff, salary or, or hourly. Okay. So, and for the 50, um, how many of those are full-time and how many are part-time? I would say the majority of them are full-time. I mean, I don't, I don't have very many that are part-time. There's a few in my uh, in the main office where we do what's called our practice support center, where they handle most of the new patient and inbound marketing calls. Um, like if we do like a, if we run a TV ad or run a newspaper ad and they call off of that, they go to all the offices, phone numbers will dial into our central location in Columbia where they actually can schedule the patient and you don't, and it reduces the amount of staff that you have to have in each one of the locations. And so we only have probably maybe three or four that are part-time. Most of them are all full-time. Does your wife, Deanne, have involvement in these five medical facilities with you or not? Yeah. So she actually was the one that helped me build it up to what it is today. So, you know, we're now no longer in the day-to-day operations of it. She still manages the, the back side of things with the compliance and bookkeeping and things like that. And she works with the CPAs at the end of the year and files all of our taxes and does all of that part. But right now, neither one of us are going into the clinics and seeing patients or, you know, having any patient interaction. So it's, it's a so we've, we've built a really good and solid team uh, that's, that, that supports us. And then we, it took us a long time to get there. We didn't just like, you know, build it in 2011, all of a sudden, you know, six months later, build it out. You know, it was a, it was a process. And so we didn't really feel comfortable until earlier, earlier this year in 2018 of actually doing that. And so in February of this year, I stepped away, promoted my COO to CEO and uh, he's been running it and doing very good with me, good with it ever since. He's been with me now for four years. So he helped me grow it to where it is today. And so um, he has now taken it and continued to grow it. And that's what he's going to be tasked with next year is, is opening two more clinics. So we, we, we pretty much cover the entire state of South Carolina, but our goal is to also cover the, the corners of the coast a little bit more. So we're also going to go into Myrtle Beach and Hilton Head next year too. Okay. So you said it, it started in 2011 and you started really feeling comfortable in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, my question is, uh, I imagine that you had one practice in 2011. Is that accurate? Correct. One. And then, um, and then through time, when did you pick up the second one? In 2016 is when we, when we decided to open up the second one and start to do some research there. So in 2015, we did some market research and ran some, some, some like marketing ads in the market that we wanted to go to, which was the North Augusta market, and started seeing patients driving two and three hours to come to see us. And so it was like, not just a few, it was like, you know, 20, 30, 40 a month were coming and doing that. And so we're like, okay, we need to go to that market and open up our first clinic. And that's the biggest you know, hurdle, like mentally is getting between the ears of the fact that you're opening a clinic that's not right next door. You can't just pop over and help out if you need to, or somebody's sick. And so there's a lot more of the logistical issues. 
And it took us a year after we opened up that second clinic to really put the systems and procedures and processes in place for the new clinic, but also for being able to manage both clinics at the same time. Because one of the things we found when we first opened up the second clinic is that our revenue for the first clinic started to dip. And because we were, we took our eye off of it to go focus on the second one. And so we had to really look at that and go, oh, wait a minute. We, yeah, we got to put systems and procedures and processes in place for that second clinic. We also have to put those, put different systems in, in place for making sure you're still watching the other clinic at the same time as managing this one. And so once we were able to figure that out, which took us a year, we were able to expand it out even more. And we, we had our goal of being able to open up five clinics or open up four more clinics in a matter of, of 24 months. And so we actually did it in 18 months. We did it on time, ahead of time. Um, that was last year we opened up three clinics. And then of course this year we didn't open up any, but the next year we're going to open up two more. Okay. Uh, what are some of those systems that you found that you needed as you got to that second one and you started to kind of have that, that thought process of, oh man, I need to start working on this, getting this to go. And you said, I need, this is a system that we need to just make average. Like what was one or not average, but implemented all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, what was like one or two things that, that kind of, that you learned right then? Sure. It's kind of funny that uh, a lot of the systems are more like procedural based, like as far as like, you know, what, what are we doing in the main clinic and what are we going to do in this clinic and how do we make it so that they're both the same, doing the same stuff. And so we had to start writing down a lot of things. But I would say the biggest thing was, is, is, is the drip is the drop in the numbers for the main clinic. And so we had to sit back and go, okay, yes, we're, we've, been, we've been managing and, and measuring certain numbers and metrics, but the interval of when we were measuring them was usually mm -hmm. quarterly. But the problem was, is that we opened a clinic at the end of a quarter, and then we wouldn't look at the numbers until the end of the next quarter, and then, then it was too late. And so we really had to start looking at the numbers on a regular, on a more regular basis. And so at that time, we started looking at them on a monthly basis. And now we have five clinics, and we look at the numbers every single week. So I stepped out earlier this year, but I still manage those numbers. So every Monday morning, I get what I call my financial reports. And I have three key people in my office that one is my, uh, our, our staff accountant. He sends me our financials every single Monday morning. And then I also have our revenue cycle, our director of revenue cycle management who does all the billing. She sends us all of the billable numbers once a week. And then we also get uh, a report from our practice support center manager who tells us how many new patient calls do we have? Well, how many reps were on the phone calls for how many minutes and which was the top rep and how many, um, how many calls did we miss and what was the talk time and you know, the booking percentages and, and all of that. And, and that's so why I get those every single week now. And I require them not to just like dump a, a report into an email and send it to me. That's what was happening in the beginning is I would get this email and just be like a, a data dump. And so I, I, I task them with every week looking at the numbers and giving me a summary of what they find in the numbers, because then it's not just me looking at it. It's also them who are, who are the boots on the ground, pulling the reports, giving me a summary of how it's going, whether it's good or bad or ugly or whatever it is. And then also meeting with my corporate team on a monthly basis to be able to continue to make sure that my vision of the practice has continued to go on. Um, and just out of curiosity, how much of the drop in numbers that was immediate in that first quarter was because there was a lot of people in two places and how much mm -hmm. of it was uh, just because there was neglect in the business? I think the biggest thing, it wasn't, it wasn't that part at all. And then the main reason why I know it wasn't that is because the market test that we did, we only ran for two or three months and got a big old bump of people coming in from, from that market. But we didn't continue that marketing because we didn't know how much they would continue to come in. 
And so we didn't like do it on like on, on like a, uh, a, you know, a January and all of a sudden do the test and open it up on a, in a March. It was, we did it like in 2015, we did some marketing in, in like the middle of the year, like May, June. And it wasn't until February of 2016 that we opened up that first satellite clinic. So we knew it wasn't that part. The biggest thing it was is us not looking and managing the numbers to know are, are the staff performing the way they needed to perform. And what we, what the bottom line was is, is that we had a management team in place in the main clinic and we took that management team to go open the second clinic. And so, cause we were all trying to, again, try to run that second clinic as lean as possible to make sure that it was going to work before we, cause we didn't have any cash flow coming in off of it. Um, and so we, the, the, we, we, we took the management team out and you know what happens, you know, when the, when the, when the cat's away, the mice play, right? So um, that's what, that's kind of what was happening. And just to kind of give you a little bit of analogy is that the, um, the, the management team had stepped away and then they were still there occasionally. It just wasn't there all the time. And so one of the other things we had to do is, is every office now has a manager in place so that there's no question as to where the management is and how the structure is. And then as we continue to expand, I had to create a hierarchy of communication and also make sure that there was still open communication. So every other week we also get on phone calls with, I don't do it now, but my CEO does. We get on the phone call with our, our providers once, I mean, once every other week to make sure that if they have any questions or concerns, they have access to us. And the same thing with the office managers, they do the same thing that everybody reports to their, their superior. And the only person that reports to me is the CEO. And then the CEO has three or four people that report to him. And then everybody else has, you know, it just kind of filters down from there. But as I was continuing to expand, I had more and more people trying to reach out to me and I just didn't have enough time in the day to be able to handle everything. And it was hard. That was probably one of the hardest things is putting that barrier in place. Cause even after we put it in place and there was that transition of power, people were still wanting to call me and talk to me and ask me questions. And I'm like, did you talk to this person or did you talk to that person? Cause I can answer your question, but if I keep on answering your question, you're going to keep on coming to me. And so I had to really just kind of shut up and, and to just turn off and turn them way back to their, to their, to their manager to make sure they're handling it. And once I did that a few times, I don't ever get any calls anymore. And that's, that's part of that hierarchy in place and making sure that you can optimize your time. I completely agree. Like when you're talking about having your employees, having, being able to ask you questions and that just kind of trains them to just keep asking you. And so just pushing them off to the manager immediately uh, sounds like a good way to kind of wean them off so that you can manage more and more people by uh, having those systems in place. I had a couple questions real fast. Um, what other, so you, we talked about in the pre-interview that you had, I, th I think you said anatomical model sales. I'm mm -hmm. probably yep. saying it totally wrong because it's not something I'm familiar with. <laughs> but it, it's like you, it's like these skeletons, I guess, that you, you just sell them. What's, yeah. what's, what's up with that? Yeah. So when I was in, uh, in Cairo school, everybody needed a spine model. And so I decided that I was going to go look and see if I could find one cheaper than what was in the bookstore because they were selling for like 190 bucks in the bookstore. And so I found a, re a resource online and found the manufacturer and got them for $42 and 48 cents. I'll never forget that number. It's 42, 48. And I sold them for $70 and I sold 80 of them the first week with cash up front in hand. And then another 40 to two weeks later. And then from there, that manufacturer allowed me to be one of their distributors for all of their products. And then I started to build a website and build, started selling them on eBay. And even today, it's a seven-figure revenue business that I have one person that runs the entire thing. And they, they just, it's just... It's just been a blessing and it's actually kind of funny because two days ago, I got a message um, from the school that I went to and they just placed another order for 38 spine models for the bookstore. 
So now the bookstore is buying for me <laughs> 10 years later. <laughs> that is very interesting. So you, you, um, you pay about 40 bucks for them and mm -hmm. what are you selling for? So right now we sell them for about $90. Um, some of actually right now on our website, we sell them for 90, but on Amazon, we sell them for about 130. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have imagined that to try to get a hold of something like that, it would have cost a lot more than uh, 90 or hundred bucks. I, I was expecting that you probably sold them for two ninety nine. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. it depends on the quality because there's several different models that we have for spines, and some of them are called ultra flexible. They have spongy discs, and they have like a different inner core to them. And I know it's kind of weird. I'm talking about spine models, but in the different qualities. But there's some that are made in Germany, which are more like your two or three hundred dollar ones, and then there's some that are some of them that are made in China that are like I said forty two dollars or whatever. And uh, and it just it just depends on the quality that you're looking for, and if somebody's just looking to try to get it as cheap as they can, which most students are, you know, you get them the cheapest one. And then when they get into practice, they'll come back to us and order one that's more of a higher quality one from like 3B Scientific or Erler Zimmer or something like that. And you don't have to have any um, inventory, do you? You just kind of let you kind of just pass it on like a drop. Yeah. So in the beginning, when I first started, we didn't have any inventory at all. It was all drop ship. Just, you know, we would, the customer would go to the website, order it, go to the, go to, would, the, I set it up myself, originally myself, so that the emails would come in or the orders would come in and emails would go out to the, the vendors automatically. And they would tell them, Hey, you know, ship this to this customer. And then they would just invoice me. And I put that on an autopilot system. And as we started to grow, I wanted to start to get better margins. And so we started to have a warehouse and things like that. And now actually about, I think it was in about two or three months ago, I came back in July, we cut out the entire uh, warehouse process of our, of us running it ourselves. And of course, like a lot of people are doing, they're having Amazon ship it. So we still get in 20, 40 foot containers of product from overseas, but they go straight into an Amazon warehouse and they pick pack and ship it for us whenever it needs to be shipped off. And we are now changing our platform for our shopping cart system from one called Volusion to one called Shopify, which a lot of people are familiar with Shopify but it actually integrates with Amazon. So now when people call, people order, it'll actually, it'll automatically tell Amazon, boom, ship it to this customer. And we never even have to do it. Cause right now we get an order from Volusion and we got to go to Amazon's website, type it into the back end of what's called their FBA platform. And then they ship it off. When we get those two connected, it'll all go together. Cool. Yeah. This is all super fascinating to me. Just all this random uh, entrepreneurial ideas that I've never really thought of. I've listened to your podcast and a couple other podcasts. They talk about drop shipping. They talk about, you know, just all these new ideas with use, utilizing Amazon and eBay and things like that to kind of make money with uh, more automated like you are. Um, you, you kind of can be hands off and somebody pays 90 bucks and then it already emails somebody and, and uh, they the only do the 40. So it's like you do nothing, but you make 50 bucks like every time this happens. So it's just kind of mm -hmm. rad. Uh, I like it a lot. So what other, so do I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet you do. So what, are, what are the things are you guys focused on right now? So we have our, um, okay, have our, our five medical offices. We have the shop and atomical. We also have another company that we sell portable chiropractic tables and it's all online. Um, and people would think, Oh, we probably don't sell very many of those, but you know, we sell 30, 40, 50 of those a month across the country and, uh, and bring those in overseas and also sell them on Amazon. And then we also have a, uh, we have our, our, our tough decisions podcast. We have our real estate, you know, Hanford Capital Company that, that does that for the multifamily. And then we have a consulting company where I actually consult other physicians across the country to do some of the marketing that we're doing in our practices. And then we also have, 
another company that we're starting that's going to be a home medical treatment that we're going to be launching and with a with a partner of mine down in Florida and you know so there I have several different things that are always going on and of course you know we created a, a new new program called our multifamily investor nation group which is just a group of meetups and, and networking opportunities for people in the multifamily uh, real estate space so there's always lots of things going on I'm always keeping my eyes open for, for new opportunities and oh and I also have a, a supplement um, company called uh, 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 Vitality Biosciences, and we sell a, a supplement that's for people who have severe disc problems, like hernia, disc herniations, bulging discs. And it's a it's a it's a supplement program that helps to strengthen the disc, and so we have that as well. Very very cool. Okay, so the Tough Decisions podcast, mm -hmm. I that sounds like a lot of work. I mean, you're putting out a crazy amount of episodes. I don't even know how you could do that. We go every other, and it's it, it it's a lot of work, honestly. So let me just ask you, you. Um, almost mentioned it like it was a business. So I wanted to ask you if, if there's any revenue that comes from it. So right now, Tough Decisions, there is no revenue that comes from it other than very, very little amount of revenue from the affiliate side of things. So when a person comes on, a guest comes on and recommends a particular book or resource, we'll go, we'll go and put an affiliate link in the, in, the, in the show notes and we'll make some revenue off of that. We made very little off that. I mean, it's like peanuts. Um, but our goal is in the first 12 months to monetize it to a point of, a, of, a, of, a, of about seven figures, not about, but seven figures um, of revenue in the first 12 months. We started it in June of, of 2018. So our goal is to, by the end of May of 2019, to have brought in um, seven figures. So our, we're already right now starting to get messages. I actually got one on Monday from somebody who wanted to, who was interested in our, our ad rates. And I'm like, Oh crap, I don't have any ad rates. So let me throw something together. So I have something to, to send to somebody so they know what we're going to be charging and stuff like that. And so a lot of those are, are based on their downloads. And so the more we, more we, more, the more we grow and the more downloads we'll get, the more we can charge for that. And so we'll, we'll have ads, we'll have ads that we'll, we'll sell and stuff like that too. And of course we've been, we've talked about creating some sort of uh, an events around the podcast for entrepreneurs around the country. And so we're, we're considering that as well. But I think, you know, we're going to have to do something more and something different um, instead of just, um, at, you know, selling ads in order to get to that seven-figure mark. So we're, we're, we're brainstorming that. And, uh, and kind of, I've actually thought that um, the group that we created with the Multifamily Investor Nation to create some sort of like, you know, entrepreneur nation or something like that where, you know, it's a kind of a, a kind of a cool thing to be a part of. And then we put some networking opportunities together through local meetups to be able to create the network of people and then have like a one, have like one or two large events a year, you know, in different parts of the country. Okay. So you might host large events one or two times a year. For the entrepreneurs. Yes. Where are you in your journey of multifamily syndications with, uh, is it Hanford Capital? Yes, Hanford okay. Capital. Okay. Yeah, so, so we have this year, this is our first year doing multifamily, but I've been, been researching it for quite some time, but stepped away from you know, the practices, like I mentioned earlier, to focus on this full time. And we have done, we've, we've been an LP investor on two different deals, and then we're on the GP side on two other deals. And then actually right now today, like when I get off the, the podcast here, I'm going to be finalizing a best and final LOI for a deal that we have coming up in Atlanta, Georgia, that we're pretty sure we're going to get. But I guess a lot of people say that about a deal that they're pretty sure they might get something, but you never know what's going to happen. So, um, but we're, we're definitely out there and, and researching it and we're focusing on five primary markets. Um, Atlanta's number one, not number one, is one of ours, but Charlotte, um, Raleigh, Jacksonville, and Orlando and uh, going deep into each one of those markets as, as deep as we can to try to find the best deal for our investors. Really, really cool. All right. So I, just basically on the LP, did you do that before you went GP? 
Did you do yes. two LPs first? Uh, yeah. And LP is limited partner. So that's the passive investor just for an audience member who might not know that yet. Um, on those two LPs, um, how, what's your total door count um, that you're passive in? Oh man, I, uh, I'd probably, I think that one's a little over about four or 500, somewhere around in there. So it's a pretty large number on that one. Okay. So combine your at 500 ish. Uh, combined with those two LPs. Yes. Cool. And then how about GP? On the GP side, it's a little bit over 600. So like 650, somewhere around in there. Oh, great. That's, that's awesome. And so you over a thousand doors total, like 1100. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, um, I specifically wanted to find out more about the, the GP, the two that you went GP on what's your role in those companies. So is it more of just the money raiser? Did you find the deal? Uh, how did you close on them? If you can kind of give us some of the details. Sure. There. So I'm a, I, I, and when, if you're new in the space of multifamily, one of the best ways, especially if you're wanting to get into the, the larger multifamily spaces, it is to do that capital raising on a couple of deals first, because it helps you check a couple of boxes. It helps you check a couple of boxes of, do I have enough investors to raise money for my own deal? And if not, you know, can I build a network and of people and other capital raising syndicators that can help me with that? But it also helps you check the boxes of, um, uh, with, with the loan requirements with Fannie Mae and, Fre Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, because they require experience. Well, if you're on the GP side on some of those larger deals like that, that's, that counts as, your ex, as some of your experience. Now, obviously, they'll take into account the length of your experience and stuff like that. But I, my background is a little bit different in that you know, I, I, ha, I bring my own net worth and liquidity to my deals. And I only really needed is that experience side of things. And most lenders upwards to about probably 10 or 15 million were comfortable with me, you know, doing a deal from experience because our budgets for our businesses are over that amount. And so we were already used to managing those budget budgets. And so if our role is primary asset management, which is what we would be doing in our businesses is managing the asset or managing the business, then they were comfortable with that. But once we start getting over to, you know, 20, 30, $40 million, that's when that experience component gets a little bit more tricky. And so we're with the one in Atlanta right now that we're getting ready to submit on is a, about a $34 million project. And so these, having these two deals that we've already closed, well, one of them we're in the process of closing on. It will be closed in November. Um, it's a $48 million project. So that one is what will help us from the experience side of things to get the best debt terms and the best structuring that we can on the deal as well. Wow. Uh, very impressive. That's very, very interesting. And I'm excited to have you on stage. So I know that it's going to be very valuable to have, have you there. I want to talk about at that event, I want to definitely t touch on like how the podcast helps you with that and with the networking to be able to raise that money. I want to get into a lot of how you raised the money for these. I mean, you're talking about a $40 million deal. The raise has got to be like 13 million. No, it's about 22. The raise is oh my yeah, on, on the, on the 32 one that we're close, we're putting an LOI on right now. It's going to be about 10. 10 and a half. Good deal, man. I can't believe everything that you're doing. It's just, it's just mind boggling how you keep the systems in place. Uh, very impressive. Are you ready for the final five? I am. Okay. Let's do a quick break and we'll be right back. Tell me if this describes you, you purchased a property, okay. A rental for its passive income. And then you realize later that it wasn't really passive now, was it? So there is one solution. And that is the only way that I know that you can actually be passive. I'm passively invested in 400 and something doors. And uh, I love it. I love those real estate investments of mine because I don't have to do anything. It's the only actual passive investments that I have. 
And I have hundreds of other doors that I have to work really hard at. It's not really passive. And if you want that solution as well, and if you'd like to partner with Blue Spruce Holdings, we have opportunities right now for accredited investors. So you can go to the show notes and schedule time, book a time just to chat with me and see if becoming an actually (laughs) passive, passive investor works for you and your real estate goals. Dan Hanford, what's the most creative deal you've done? Well, I would say that the the, the creativeness on uh, my deals um, so far, I've really been on some of the stuff that I've done for my medical offices. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about from the, the, not the landlord, but the tenant side is, is, is a lot of times about structuring the best thing for the, for the, that, that's beneficial for the landlord plus the tenant. And so of course we had a lot of, you know, negotiating, going back and forth of, of build outs and stuff like that. And one of the biggest things that they like to see is, you know, a, a personal guarantee from the person who is, who owns the business, Right. Um, obviously, when you have larger businesses like a, like a hospital or like a Starbucks or a national chain, they don't have those those personal guarantees because there is nobody to personally guarantee it. Um, but when you have a smaller property, I mean, a property with a smaller tenant, a lot of times they want you to put a personal guarantee in. And I, I didn't want to put a personal guarantee on any of them because, you know, I, I just I was like, I'm not going to do it. So you either want me or you don't. And one of the deals was a, a building that was owned by an insurance company, one of the large national insurance companies, and they required it. They're like, you've got to have it. And so in talking back and forth with their, um, their broker that we were working with, I, we basically came up with a structure where instead of me having to personally guarantee the full five years of the lease, I was able to protect their interest of the amount of money that they spent on the build out by doing what's called a burnout over a two year period of time. So they spent about $100,000 building out our offices, building out this one particular office. And instead of me having to do a full guarantee on the full five-year lease, I was able to do a two-year burnout, which means that after the first 12 months, I personally guaranteed only $100,000. So I personally guaranteed $100,000 and then it burned down over two years. So after the first 12 months, I only guaranteed $50,000. And then after after 24 months, it burned down to zero. And so it was just a strategic way and a, and a different strategy that even from the landlord's perspective, you have some, some difficult tenant like myself that doesn't want to personally guarantee, you know, a, a, a note or whatever, or a, or a lease. That's a different way to look at it. A different way to structure it is just to have like a burn down to protect your upfront capital that you had to put into the lease to begin with to get them into the, into the space. Great. I like that. All right. So what's a book you recommend? <clears throat> So if you're, again, my space is, is the multifamily space. There's two books that I really go to a lot. Um, one of not, I don't go to them, but I've, I've recommend a lot. One of them is the Wheelbarrow Profits by Jake and Gino. It's a great book for, for me. For me, I, I always recommend it to people who are looking for more of the smaller, you know, mom and pop, you know, type apartments. And they are now getting into some of the larger complexes. But when it goes to the larger complexes, I'm, I'm actually now recommending uh, Joe Fairless's new book that he wrote the best ever apartment syndication book. It's a really, really good book, very detailed, um, doesn't leave anything out. And, uh, and he's actually my mentor, so I have a little bit of bias there, but I would say that even going through the book, the stuff that I've learned is, 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 is in the book, you know, from, from paying him the thousands of dollars that I have to, for him to be my mentor. Very, very good, thank you. And let's just think back uh, about five years ago. Where were you? Kind of paint us that picture real fast. Sure. I was, uh, so I still had my shop anatomical business. I still had my, uh, a couple online businesses that I have now. And then I had my own practice. So I was a chiropractor going in every day, seeing patients, you know, 40, 50 patients a day and doing that five days a week. 
And, uh, and so I was, I was, I was enjoying it, but I, I enjoyed the patient interaction, but, uh, the, the, uh, the income that I have now wasn't there that it was five years ago. And five years from now, where will you be? On a beach in Tahiti. No, just kidding. Um, so my, my, my big thing right now is trying to build it, build my portfolio to a point where everything is in a passive stance. So every time, every, if, you, if, you, if you look back in my history of on a, as an entrepreneur, I've, I've found a business that I wanted to start. I started the business and I put systems in place to automate it and, and to make it so, or to either automate it or to allow other people to run it so that I can go on to start the next business. So in the next five years, I'm assuming that I'm going to probably have another three or four businesses, if not more, that I've built up to the point of being able to um, uh, be, make them be as passive income. And then, of course, one of the things I'm considering now is, is, is exiting some of these businesses. So now that I've built them up to a certain point, they're all passive. A lot of private equity firms like that when they, the person who started it can actually step away and it still produces a very strong revenue. They like that kind of stuff and you can get a lot more multiples off of the EBITDA from that particular um, exit. So that's one of the things we're considering as well and also rolling up some of the businesses and other businesses to get an even larger exit. Okay, perfect. For the listener that resonates with what you're talking about and what you're teaching and what you're doing, how do they find you or, or get a hold of you? You can visit us on our podcast website, which is toughdecisions.net. Yeah, and also if you want, you can come to Denver. Yes, yes. On 11, 17, and 18. So, hey, Dan, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate everything that you've given us today, just kind of going through your journey. Uh, I, we didn't really get to touch too much on, on any one thing because you are doing so much, but it is very inspiring the amount of, of businesses that you have going, the amount of time and attention that you put into your podcast. Every, every week you're putting out like 14 episodes. It's just, it's really impressive everything that you're, that you're doing. And, I, and if nothing else, this, uh, this episode was extremely inspiring of what is, cap what's, you know, the human being is actually capable of doing when you're systemizing and putting in processes for your business. So thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Hey, it's Adam Adams, and I'm really grateful to have you as a loyal listener of the show. It is disclaimer time, and there is four things that need to be said. And number one, we're not attorneys or CPAs. So please consult your own professional advisors. Number two, any investment opportunity that is discussed on this show is for accredited investors only. And if you would like to be a part of one, my contact information is in the show notes. Number three, if you love this content, all I ask is that you show us by going to iTunes and leaving a five-star rating and review. And number four, the best ever conference is coming up. It's on February 22nd and 23rd. The price is changing every single week. So don't wait to get your tickets. Go grab them right now. Go to besteverconference.com and then put in the hashtag blue spruce.